Hey folks, welcome back to Mr. Will Larson's podcast. Um, part one, rent. Chapter one, the business of owning the city. Before we get started, I just want to let you know that um, I'd really like for you to read along while I read. Um, the purpose of this is to open up your world to pot to the wonderful world of podcasts. Um, but also to help you track um, while someone else is reading. Um, you always have the option of not listening to the podcast and just reading and answering the questions on your own. Let's get started. <clears throat> Before the city yielded to winter, as cold and gray as a mechanic's wrench, before Arlene convinced Sharina Tarver to let her boys move into the 13th Street duplex, the inner city was crackling with life. It was early September and Milwaukee was enjoying an Indian summer. Music rolled into the streets from car speakers as children played on the sidewalk or sold water bottles by the freeway entrance. Grandmothers watched from porch chairs as bare-chested black boys laughingly made their way to the basketball court. Sharina wound her way through the north side, listening to R&B with her window down. Most middle-class Milwaukeeans zoomed past the inner city on the freeway. Landlords took the side streets, typically not in their Saab or Audi, but in their, quote, rent collector, end quote. Some oil-leaking, rusted-out van or truck that hauled around extension cords, ladders, maybe a loaded pistol, plumbing snakes, toolboxes, a can of mace, nail guns, and other necessities. Sharina usually left her lipsticked red Camaro at home and visited tenants in a beige and brown 1993 Chevy Suburban with 22-inch rims. The Suburban belonged to Quentin, Sharina's husband, business partner, and property manager. He used a screwdriver to start it. Some white Milwaukeeans still referred to the North Side as the, quote, the core, end quote, as they did in the 1960s. And if they ventured into it, they saw street after street of sagging duplexes, fading murals, 24-hour daycares, and corner stores with WIC accepted here signs. WIC is food stamps. Once America's 11th largest city, Milwaukee's population had fallen below 600,000, down from over 740,000 in 1960. It showed. Abandoned properties and weedy lots where houses once stood dotted the north side. A typical residential street had a few single-family homes owned by older folks who tended gardens and hung American flags. More duplexes or four-family apartment buildings were ch with chipping paint and bedsheet curtains rented to struggling families, and vacant plots and empty houses with boards drilled over their doors and windows. Sharina saw all this, but she saw something else, too. Like other seasoned landlords, she knew who owned which multifamily, which church, which bar, which street, knew its different vicissitudes of life. 
its shades and moods, knew which blocks were hot and drug-soaked and which were stable and quiet. She knew the ghetto's value and how money could be made from a property that looked worthless to people who didn't know any better. Petite with chestnut, chestnut skin, Sharina wore a lightweight red and blue jacket that matched her pants, which matched her off-kilter NBA cap. She liked to laugh, a full open mouth hoot, sometimes catching her shoulder as if to keep from falling. But as she turned off North Avenue on her way to pay a visit to tenants who lived near the intersection of 18th and Wright Streets, she slowed down and let out a heavy sigh. Evictions were a regular part of the business, but Lamar didn't have any legs. Sharina was not looking forward to evicting a man without legs. When Lamar first fell behind, Sharina didn't reach automatically for the eviction notice or shrug it off with a bromide about business being business. She hemmed and hawed, quote, I'm going to have a hard time doing this, end quote. She told Quentin when she could no longer ignore it. You know that, don't you? Sharina frowned. Quentin stayed quiet and let his wife say it. It's only fair. Sharina offered after a few silent moments of deliberation. I feel bad for the kids. Lamar's got them little boys in there. And I love Lamar. But I don't love... But love don't pay the bills. Sharina had a lot of bills. Mortgage payments, water charges, maintenance expenses, property taxes. Sometimes a major expense would come out of nowhere. A broken furnace, an unexpected bill from the city, and leave her close to broke until the first of the month. We don't have time to wait, Quentin said. While we... While we waiting on his payment, the taxes are going up. The mortgage payment is going up. So I'm going to pause real quick, you guys, and just catch up to speed. Uh, Sharina, obviously a landlord who owns a lot of property in um, the poor part of Milwaukee. Her husband is Quentin and also her business partner. And Lamar is a gentleman who is renting a house that Sharina owns. Um, who doesn't have legs and is behind in his rent. Just wanted to catch you up on the characters involved here. There was no hedging in this business. When a tenant didn't pay $500, her landlord lost $500. When that happened, landlords with mortgages due into their... I'm sorry. When that happened, landlords with mortgages dug into their savings or their income to make sure the bank didn't hand them a foreclosure notice. There were no euphemisms either, no downsizing, no quarterly losses. Landlords took the gains and losses directly. They saw the deprivation and waste up close. Old timers liked recalling their first big loss, their initial breaking in. The time a tenant tore down her own ceiling, took pictures and convinced the court commissioner it was the landlord's fault. The time an evicted couple stuffed socks down the sinks and turned the water on full blast before moving out. Rookie landlords hardened or quit. Sharina nodded reassuringly and said, almost to herself, I guess I gotta stop feeling sorry for these people because nobody is feeling sorry for me. 
Last time I checked, the mortgage company still wanted their money. Sharina and Quentin had met years ago on Fond du Lac Avenue. Quentin pulled up beside Sharina at a red light. She had a gorgeous smile and her car stereo was turned up. He asked her to pull over. Sharina remembered Quentin being in a Daytona, but he insisted it was the, reg the Regal. Quote, I ain't trying to pull nobody over in the Daytona, he said, feying off offense. Quentin was well manicured, built but not muscular, with curly hair and lots of jewelry. A thick chain, a thicker bracelet, rings. Sharina thought he looked like a dope dealer, but gave him her real number anyways. Quentin called Sharina for three months before she agreed to let him take her out for ice cream. It took him another six years to marry her. When Quentin pulled Sharina over, she was a fourth grade teacher. She talked like a teacher, calling strangers honey and offering motherly advice or chiding. You know I'm fixing to fuss at you, she would say. If she sensed your attention starting to drift, she would touch your elbow or thigh to pull you back in. For years after meeting Quentin, Sharina was happy with their relationship, but bored at work. After eight years in the classroom, she quit and opened a daycare, but they shut it down on a tiny technicality, she remembered, so she went back to teaching. After her son from an earlier relationship started acting out, she began homeschooling him and tried her hand at real estate. When people asked, why real estate? Sharina would reply with some talk about long-term residuals or property being the best investment out there. But there was more to it. Sharina shared something with other landlords, an unbending confidence that she would make it on her own without a school or a company to fall back on. Without a contract or a pension or a union, she had an understanding with the universe that she could strike out into nothing and through her own gumption and intelligence come back with a good living. Sharina had bought a home in 1999 when prices were low. Riding the housing boom a few years later, she refinanced and pulled out $21,000 in equity. That means she made $21,000. She used the cash to buy her first rental property, a two-unit duplex in the inner city where housing was cheapest. Rental profits, refinancing, and private real estate investors offering high-interest loans helped her buy a, lo a home. She learned that the rental population comprised some upper- and middle-class households who rent out of preference or circumstance. Some young and transient people and most of the city's poor, who were excluded both from home ownership and public housing. Landlords operated in different neighborhoods, typically clustering their properties in a concentrated area. In the segregated city, this meant that landlords focused on housing certain kinds of people, white ones or black ones, poor families or college students, Sharina decided to specialize in renting to the black poor. Four years later, she owned 36 units, all in the inner city, and took to carrying a pair of cell phones with backup batteries, reading Forbes, renting office space, and accepting appointments from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. 
Quentin quit his job and started working as Sharina's property manager and buying buildings of his own. Sharina started a credit repair business and an investment business. She purchased two 15-passenger vans and started Prisoner Connections LLC, which for $25 to $50, a seat transported girlfriends and mothers and children to visit their incarcerated loved ones upstate. Sharina had found her calling, inner-city entrepreneur. Sharina parked in front of Lamar's place and reached for a pair of eviction notices. The property sat just off of Wright Street with empty lots and a couple of street memorials for murder victims, teddy bears, blackened mild cigars, and scribbled notes lashed to tree trunks. It was a four-family property consisting of two detached two-story buildings, one directly behind the other. The houses were longer than they were wide, with rough wood balconies painted blue-gray like the trim and vinyl siding that was the brownish-white of leftover milk in a cereal bowl. The house facing the street had two doors. For the upper and lower units and a pair of wooden steps leading to each, one old with peeling paint, the other new and unvarnished. Lamar lived in the lower unit of the back house, which abutted the alley. When Sharina pulled up, he was outside, being pushed in a wheelchair by Patrice, whose name was on the other eviction notice. He had snapped on his plastic prosthetic legs. An older black man, Lamar was wiry and youthful from the waist up, with skin the color of wet sand. He had a shaved head and a thin mustache flecked with gray. He wore a yellow sports jersey with his keys around his neck. Oh, I got two at the same time, Sharina tried to say lightly. She handed Lamar and Patrice their eviction notices. You almost been late, Patrice said. She wore a head wrap, pajama pants, and a white tank top that showed off her tattoo on her right arm, a cross and a ribbon with the names of her three children. At 24, Patrice was half Lamar's age, but her eyes looked older. She and her children lived in the upper unit of the front house. Her mother, Doreen Hinkson, and her three younger siblings lived below her in the bottom floor unit. Patrice creased her eviction notice and jammed it into a pocket. I'm fixing to go to practice, Lamar said from his seat. What practice? Sharina asked. My kid's football practice. He looked at the paper in his hand. You know, we fixing to do the basement. I'm already started. He didn't tell me about that, Sharina replied. He being Quentin. Sometimes tenants worked off the rent by doing odd jobs for landlords, like cleaning out basements. You better call me. Don't forget who the boss is, Sharina joked. Lamar smiled back at her. As Patrice began pushing Lamar down the street, Sharina went over a checklist in her head. There were so many things to deal with. Repairs, collections, moves, advertisements, inspectors, social workers, cops. The swirl of work, a million little things regularly interrupted by some big thing, had been encroaching on her Sunday soul food dinner with her mom. Just a month earlier, someone had been shot in one of her properties. A tenant's new boyfriend had taken three pumps to the chest, and blood had run down him like a full-on faucet. 
After police officers had asked their questions and balled up the yellow tape, Sharina and Quentin were struck, stuck with the cleanup. Quentin sat on it with a couple of guys, rubber gloves and a shop vac. Here you come with a boyfriend that I don't know anything about, Sharina asked the tenant. Quentin dealt with the messes. Sharina dealt with the people. That was the arrangement. Then, a few days after the shooting, another tenant phoned Sharina to say that her house was being shut down. Sharina didn't believe it until she pulled up and spotted white men in hard hats screwing green boards over her windows. The tenants had been caught stealing electricity, so the We Energies men had disconnected service at the pole and placed a call to the Department of Neighborhood Services. The tenants had to be out that day. In Milwaukee and across the nation, most renters were responsible for keeping the lights and heat on. But that had become increasingly difficult to do. Since the year 2000, the cost of fuels and utilities had risen by more than 50%, thanks to increasing global demand and the expiration of price caps. In a typical year, almost one in five poor renting families nationwide missed payments and received a disconnection notice from their utility company. Families who couldn't both make rent and keep current with their utility companies sometimes paid a cousin or neighbor to reroute the meter. As much as $6 billion worth of power was pirated across America every year. Only cars and credit cards got stolen more. Stealing gas was much more difficult and rare. It was also unnecessary in the wintertime when the city put a moratorium on disconnections. On that April day when the moratorium lifted, gas operators returned to poor neighborhoods with their stacks of disconnected notices and toolboxes. Disconnection notices, I'm sorry. We Energies disconnected roughly 50,000 households each year for non-payment. Many tenants who were in the winter stayed current on their rent at the expense of their heating bill, tried in the summer to climb back into the black with the utility company by shorting their landlord. Come the following winter, they had to be connected to benefit from the moratorium on disconnection. So every year in Milwaukee, evictions spiked in the summer and early fall and dipped again in November when the moratorium began. Sharina watched the DNS hard hats march around her property. There were a few things that frustrated landlords more than clipboard-in-hand building inspectors. When they were not shutting down a property, they were scrutinizing apartments for code violations. Upon request, DNS would send a building inspector to any property. The service was designed to protect the city's most vulnerable renters from negligent landlords, but to Sharina and other property owners, tenants called for small cosmetic things, and often because they were trying to stop an eviction or retaliate against the landlords. Sharina thought about the money she had just lost, a few thousand dollars for electrical work and unpaid rent. She remembered taking a chance on this family, feeling sorry for the mother who had told Sharina she was trying to leave her abusive boyfriend. Sharina had decided to rent to her and her children, even though the woman had been evicted three times in the past two years. There's me having a heart again, she thought. Sharina drove off Wright Street and headed north. 
Since she was in this part of town, she decided to make one more stop, her duplex on 13th and Keefe. Sharina had let a new tenant move in the previous month with a partial rent and security deposit payment. The tenant was sitting on her stoop in a long-sleeved flannel shirt, hushing a colicky baby and talking with her mother, who was leaning against a car. Seeing Sharina, the young woman wasted no time. My son is sick because my house is cold, she said. Her voice was tired. The window have a hole in it, and I've been waiting patiently. I mean, I'm ready to move. Sharina tilted her head, confused. <clears throat> the window had a hole, not a crater. And it was warm enough outside the children were still swimming in Lake Michigan. How, how could the house be cold? I'd done call the city, the mother added, peeling herself off the car. She was slender and tall, her hair frizzed by the late summer humidity. Sharina took a breath. There were worse houses on the block, but Sharina knew her place on 13th Street wasn't up to code. She would say almost no house in the city was, a commentary on the mismatch between Milwaukee's worn-out housing stock and its exact building code. Thanks to the tenant's mother, an inspector would arrive in a few days. He would jiggle the stair banister, photograph the hole in the window, shimmy the unhinged, unhinged front door. Every code violation would cost Sharina money. That wasn't right for you to do that, Sharina said, because I was working with her. Then fix the window, the mother replied. We will, but if she don't call us to let us know, she don't have no phone. That's why I called, the mother interrupted. As the conversation grew louder, a crowd gathered. Who is she? A young boy asked. Landlord, came a reply. I didn't know you were going to call the building inspector, Mama, the tenant said nervously. It's too late now. The damage is done, Sharina said. She shook her head and hands on her hips looked at the young woman with the baby. It's always the ones that I try to help that I have the problems out of. And I'm not saying that you a problem, but it's just that somebody else is involved and you the ones living here. So it puts you in a spot. Well, let me ask you something. The tenant's mother stepped closer and the crowd with her. If this was your daughter and these were your grandkids, what would you do? Sharina didn't step back. She looked up at the mother, noticing her gold front tooth, and answered, I would have definitely made a connection with the landlord and not called the city. Sharina pushed past the crowd and stepped briskly to her car. When she got home, she opened the door and yelled, Quentin, we done walked straight into some bullshit. Sharina sat down in her paper-cluttered home office. The office was one of five bedrooms in Sharina and Quentin's home, which sat in a quiet, middle-class black neighborhood off Capitol Drive. The house had a finished basement with an inset jacuzzi tub. Sharina and Quentin had furnished it with beige leather furniture, large brass and crystal light fixtures, and gold-colored curtains. The kitchen was spacious and unused, since they ate out most days. Typically, the only things in the refrigerator were restaurant doggy bags. Huh? Quentin called back, coming down the stairs. The girl downstairs at 13th Street. Her mama done called the building inspector. Her mother was outside talking shit. Quentin listened to the story and said, put her out. 
Sharina thought about it for a moment, then agreed. She reached in a drawer and began filling out a five-day eviction notice. The law forbade landlords from retaliating against tenants who contacted DNS, but landlords could at any time evict tenants for being behind on rent or for other violations. By the time Quentin and Sharina pulled the Suburban onto 13th Street, night had fallen. The apartment door was open. Sharina walked right through it without knocking and handed the young tenant an eviction notice saying, Here, I hope you get some assistance. A man followed Sharina out the door and stood on the unlit porch. Excuse me, he called out as Sharina met Quentin in the street. You're evicting her? She told me she wanted to move, so that let me know she wasn't going to pay anything else, Sharina answered. She told you she wanted the windows fixed. Quentin interjected, looking at Sharina. He ain't got nothing to do with it. I got everything to do with it, blood. That's my stepdaughter here. You don't even stay here, though, man, Quentin yelled back. Ain't nobody want to live like that. Fuck you, mean. I don't have nothing to do with it. Quentin opened the suburban's door and pulled out his security belt. Equipped with handcuffs, a small baton, and a canister of mace the size of a small fire extinguisher. Quentin had been here before. There was the tenant who told him he was going to take a security deposit out of Quentin's pocket. There was the one who said he was going to shoot him in the face. The tenant's mother joined the stepfather on the dark porch. Are you evicting her? She asked. She didn't pay her rent, Sharina said. Do y'all have her rent to pay? I don't give a shit, man, the stepfather was saying almost to himself. What he didn't give a shit about was the eviction, but whatever was going to transpire there at that very moment on that dark street. I don't either, Quentin shot back. I'll wh whip that motherfucking ass, nigga. Don't say I ain't got nothing to do with it. You don't, Sharina yelled as Quentin tugged her back to the suburban. You don't. Days after the tenant left, Sharina took a call from the caseworker at Wraparound, a local social service agency. The caseworker had a client who needed a place to live with her two boys. Wraparound would pay her security deposit the first month's rent, which sounded good to Sharina. The new tenant's name was Arlene Bell. Thanks for listening, folks. Go find your assignment and get started on it.